0: In 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody ever read that book? Five? Five? Wow, there's more of you here than six. Seven? Eight? <laughs> uh, more of you here than those, and then the first service. All right, that's good. So this won't be too much of a stretch. Anyway, <clears throat> the book talks about a well-to-do popular Victorian gentleman A medical doctor named Dr. Jekyll. Lived in London, very popular. He had an elite clientele of the rich and the famous and the nobility and the royalty. He was very well-to-do. Had a beautiful house in, in downtown London. But he had a problem. As wonderful and as prosperous and as successful he was, he knew deep down in his heart that there was a battle raging within him. A battle between good and the things that were lawful and evil, the things that were not lawful. And so he decided that he, would, he wanted to do something to kind of separate out these two natures from within himself. He wanted to find a way to let Dr. Jekyll be the good guy during the day and to let his evil Mr. Hyde personality out at night to run free. And so down in the basement of his beautiful London home was a laboratory. Back in Victoria era, that was not uncommon. Medical doctors often had laboratories in the basement of their homes and that's where they would cook up different elixirs and potions to help cure the... As common sicknesses of, of, of humanity, but for Dr. Jekyll, his laboratory was not set up to find cures for, well, the cold or for human sickness. It was set up to find an antidote for the problem in his heart. The long story short, he was successful in creating a potion, and he took it himself. And when he took it himself, he was able to transform from the good guy, Dr. Jekyll, and turn into the evil Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll lived during the day in the beautiful home doing medical doctor stuff. And at night, Mr. Hyde would show up, and he would hide in the shadows of the London River District, waiting to attack and kill anybody who might be wandering in the dark streets alone. In fact throughout the rest of the book. People don't recognize that these two men are the same. They don't understand that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same individual. Even up until almost the end of the book. They think these are two different people. One is really good. The other is really evil. This potion that he took is a timed potion. Potion. Which means that after he drinks it, after a certain amount of time, he transforms back into Dr. Jekyll. So when Dr. Jekyll takes it in the evening, Mr. Hyde comes out, and then as the darkness fades away and morning comes, he transforms back into Dr. Jekyll. You're with me still? Those of you who read the book, am I good? It's good? All right. Nobody's calling me a heretic just yet. All right. So... The climax of the story, the horror of the story comes to a climax when as the evening is fading away, when the darkness is fading away and the potion is starting to wear off, Mr. Hyde is now walking into Dr. Jekyll's home and he's going up a staircase or I think that's where it is and there's a full length mirror on the wall and as he passes by he's wearing the body of Mr. Hyde. But he's looking out with the eyes of Dr. Jekyll. And when he catches a glimpse of of himself in the full-bodied mirror, with the mind and eyes of Dr. Jekyll, he says these words, this too is myself, this too is myself. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. This is the last message in the series that we've entitled Newish. We're going to look at verses 7 to 25. And today we are actually going to look at a full length mirror of our souls. And I think we are going to conclude today that this too is myself. The Apostle Paul, as we have seen in the last several weeks, has told us that we are new, but we're newish. That we who have been born in this world have been born under Adam. And because we have been born under Adam, we have been born into sin. Because of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden, because of the sin he committed, all of us who are born in this world, we are all born in sin. Thank you, Adam. And so because of his mistake, we are all represented by Adam. And because he sinned, we all too have sinned. We have all been born with a sin nature. And our sin nature wants to separate us from a holy God. And so we like sin and we love sin and we like to play with sin. But living a life of sin will ultimately lead us to eternal separation from God. But while none of us had a say in how we were born, all of us do have a say in whether or not we stay that way. Because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can go from team Adam to team Christ, amen? We can go from being dead in our sins to alive with Christ, and those who are in Christ, who are in team Christ, have a new identity and a new destiny and a new power and a new everything, all because of Jesus Christ. And we learn that that new identity, we get to find union with Christ and we identify in that union with Christ through our baptism. And a baptism that symbolizes our joining with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We saw the Apostle Paul talk about how that union can be described and how we have been set free from the slavery to sin, but now we are slaves to Jesus Christ and to righteousness as slavery that actually sets us free to live for Christ. Last week we saw how that fact that our union with Christ allows us to be dead to sin but also dead to the law and alive to grace. That we are no longer bound to the law, but we have been set free in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to live free in the light of His glory. And that's what we learned last week. But this week, we come to an obvious set of questions that should arise in our hearts based on what we have read and studied so far. It's two questions pertaining to the law. And if you don't get anything out of this message except what I'm about to say, get this, where the law fails, Jesus prevails. Jesus prevails. Where the law fails, Jesus prevails. We're going to look at two questions that the Apostle Paul raises in these verses. And the first question he raises in these verses is that, Is the law sinful? Is the law sinful? Notice verse number 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So before I jump into this passage, let me just also say that in these verses 7 through 21, Paul uses the personal pronoun I. Over and over and over again, he says I, I, I. And so this is a very hotly debated passage of Scripture. Very hotly debated because people look at Paul and the use of I, and he says, well, this can't really be talking about now. This is talking about Paul when he was a Pharisee, before he was saved, back in the past, some time ago. Others look at that and say, no, when Paul says I, he's identifying himself with Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's the only time that they didn't have a law, and therefore this is talking about Adam. Others say, no, Paul is talking about himself identifying with Israel as a whole. And that's what the I is referencing. So with all due respect to all of those wonderful people, I disagree. In fact, the majority of commentators disagree. When Paul says I, I think he means I. (laughs) It's talking about Paul. It's Paul, as he writes the gospel or this epistle of Romans, it's Paul here and now as he is penning these words to the church in Rome. So when he says, I, it's Paul. Paul now. And he's going to give us a full-length picture of what he looks like in the mirror. And we're going to see ourselves in that same mirror. And we're going to see whether Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde is reigning supreme. As one commentator put it, whether you are new in the faith, or you're a giant like the Apostle Paul in Christ, none of us have graduated from Romans chapter 7. And so with that introduction, let me also say that because I believe that this is the Apostle Paul, I want you to notice that these verses are structured very beautifully. It's structured very chronologically. Verses 7 through 12 are all occurring in the past. All of the verbs in verses 7 through 12 are happening in the past. Not past as in when Paul was a Pharisee. Past as in the moment Paul became a child of God on the road to Damascus from that point on. It's happening in the past. Verses 13 to 23 are all occurring in the present. He uses over 20 present tense verbs to talk about the here and the now. What is happening in the heart. And in the life of the Apostle Paul. Verses 24 and 25 are all happening in the future. It's talking about something that will happen in the future. And so there's this beautiful chronological order of past, present, and future going on in this passage. And so Paul asks the question in verse number 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sinful? Church, what's the answer to that? You're not so sure. Let's try that again. Is the law sinful? No, absolutely not. Yes, we have died to the law. Yes, we are now alive in grace. But that doesn't mean that the law is sinful. And so Paul then goes on to talk about why that's the case and he uses an example. He uses the example of covetousness. You guys realize that covetousness is one of the 10 commandments, right? Anybody know which number it is? Anybody? Nobody wants to guess. It's okay. It's number 10. It's the last one on the list. Why use covetousness? Why use this particular example to help I press this point home? I think the reason is because the other nine all have to do with the outside. They're all external. And I know immediately when I have broken one of the other nine. So when God says, do not make a graven image, it's pretty obvious when I've broken that one, right? Right? There's a graven image. There you can see it. When God says, do not murder, I think I know when I messed that one up. When God says, don't commit adultery, well, that's pretty obvious, right? But when God says, do not covet, that's not an outside sort of thing. That's all in my heart. You see, covetousness has to do with wanting what somebody else has usually at the other person's expense. Someone said it this way, covetousness is sorrow over someone else's blessing. And so we have this commandment, do not covet, which means don't desire what somebody else has at their expense. And Paul says that as soon as that command was given, all he could do was think about covetousness. So that's like, okay, that's theoretical. So let's make it really concrete for you. Ready? Here at Woodside Bible Church at Lapeer, starting 11.32 a.m. for the next 30 minutes, thou shalt not think of a red fire truck. Okay, what did you all think of? Come on, be honest. Didn't I just tell you not to think of a red fire truck? Okay, we're going to try this again. Here's the new rule for the next 30 minutes. Work with me here. Thou shalt not think of a red fire truck. Oh, man, some of you are just messed up. You see the problem? You didn't know that was a bad thing to do, did you? Until I said it. And the moment I said it, your mind went where? To a red fire truck. Why? Why? Why is it that when God issues a commandment and as soon as we recognize that there is a law and a commandment from God, why is it that our natural inclination is to break it? Why is it that red fire trucks all of a sudden pop into our heads? We never thought of it today, but as soon as I said it, you all thought it. Because deep within ourselves, there is a Mr. Hyde lurking next to a Dr. Jekyll. That's what the Apostle Paul says. It isn't the law's fault that we have died to the law. But it's the sin in our hearts that are keeping us from doing the things that God has called us to do. And so down deep in our hearts... Sin at its very core is the the desire to be independent of God, independent to do what it feels right to us, to have our self-sufficiency within ourselves so that we can do what feels good to us irrespective of what God says. And that's what sin wants us to do. And so the moment God tells us to do something, we want to do the exact opposite. And so the Apostle Paul goes on in verse number 8 to say, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, and good. Twice in these verses, Paul says that sin, seizing an opportunity. That phrase, seizing an opportunity, is a military term. It means to set up a base of operations from which to operate from. It's like setting up a a beachhead. In World War II, on D-Day, the allied forces gathered together and they assaulted Normandy Beach. Remember your history. Right, Lots of casualties, but they established themselves on that coast. And that coast, Normandy became a beachhead where the Allied forces marshaled and gathered and and set up supply lines and, and logistics so that they could then from there spread their influence to break the stranglehold of the Nazis. That's a beachhead. What Paul is saying is as soon as the law was declared, sin set up a beachhead in my heart. As soon as God said, do not covet, sin set up a beachhead in my heart, and all I could think of was coveting. In fact, all I could think of was all the good things that God didn't want me to do. How about you? Still thinking about a red fire truck? Isn't it interesting how it works in our heart? That the moment we hear God's law, we want naturally to do anything but What God has said to do. Paul here says the commandment was good. The commandment was going to bring life. The commandment is is good. It comes from a good God. And yet in my heart, I want to do nothing with it. I want to run from it. I want to do the opposite. We see a sign that says don't touch. And what's our natural inclination? Why? Why? We see a sign that says, do not enter. And our first inclination is, oh yeah, says who? What's back there? And then you want to go in and see what they're trying to hide. Come on, be honest. Right? Our natural inclination is to go open that door and see what's behind that door. Why? Because sin crouches in our heart. As soon as there's a commandment, we want to break it. No matter how good that sign is, no matter how good that law is, we want to break it. The law is not sinful. Friends, you and I are sinful. That's the honest truth. You and I have a sin problem. It isn't the law's fault. It's ours. You see, the law can only point out how far we are from a holy and righteous God. The law's purpose is to show you in a mirror the ideal shape and character of who you're supposed to be. And every day when you stand in front of that mirror, you see how far from that ideal you are. You see, the law cannot save you. The law can only show you the righteous, holy standard of a God and how far we are from it. And so the point of the law is not to save you. The point of the law is to drive you to the only person who can save you, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? So is the law sinful, church? So if the law is not sinful, there's another problem that Paul has already talked about, and that is that the law brought death. And so the second question he deals with here is, is the law death? Notice what he says in verse number 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure so here's the question is the law death church what's the answer thank you dan is the law death no you ever fall and then you realize that your right arm is really hurting and you go to the doctor and the doctor takes an x-ray and he comes back and he says man i got bad news for you Your arm is broken in three places How many of you would ever say, man, your x-ray machine's broken. Go recalibrate that thing. Doctor, what's wrong with you? You wouldn't say that, would you? It's not the x-ray machine's fault that your arm is broken, is it? Whose fault is it? Yours or whoever pushed you. (laughs) Right? We blame the law for the fact that we can't keep the law. And yet it's not the law's fault that brings us death. It's Our fault. It's our Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde battle that goes on within us that is at fault. Notice what he says in verse number 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, Paul has his own Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde battle going on in his own life, doesn't he? The good that he wants to do, he knows it's good. He knows the law of God. He knows that that law is going to bring life and liberty and righteousness. He knows it. And yet, for some reason, he can't do it. The thing he wants to do, he doesn't do. But what does he do? He does the thing that he doesn't want to do. He follows Mr. Hyde around more often than he's following Dr. Jekyll around. Why is it that we have this battle within us? You see, it's not the law that brings us death, it's our sin. Paul knows that what is right and good, he knows what is evil, but he has a hard time choosing the good. How about you? How about me? How often is it that we struggle with that same question? How to choose the good over that which is evil? And how often have we chosen wrong? How have we chosen wrong? Notice verse number 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You see, Paul says, and I'm so thankful he clarified it. Nothing good dwells in me, but he qualifies it that is in my flesh. Is he talking about this body? He's talking about this muscle and skin and bone? Is he talking about my physical body? No, he's not. The Bible never teaches that our physical body is evil. What Paul is talking about is his old self, his old nature. You remember back when we were under Team Adam? Remember, we were born in sin. We loved sin. And Jesus came into our lives and we gave our lives to Jesus Christ. And he broke the power of sin and set us free to be in team Christ. You remember that story, right? He put to death the sin in our lives and he gave us a new man within us. He gave us the spirit of God to live within us. And so we now have the power in our lives to say no to sin and yes to Christ, right? Church would say an amen right there, right? But guess what? The old man, while no longer having the power over you, still has a voice, doesn't he? Doesn't she? And as much as we listen to God's word, and as much as we delight in God's word, and as much as we want to follow God's word, over here is that old nature going, woohoo, over here. Right? Right? Don't look at me like I got horns on my head. That, that, that happens, right? We live and every day the old man's going, Hey, yoohoo, I'm over here. Remember me? Remember how much fun we had back there to do that thing? And then we trip and we fall and we go over there and we do that thing and all of a sudden we're like, why did I do this? This isn't as much fun as I thought it was. Why did I blow this again? Why did I mess up again? That's nowhere near as fun as it used to be. Aren't you glad that when you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Amen. Yeah, we trip and fall. But we can get right back up through the Spirit of God because now we have the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But when we do fall, we have an advocate with the Father who holds us and sustains us and loves us and keeps us going in the power of the Spirit. And that's why Paul says... That there is nothing, that good, nothing good that dwells in me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There is this war going on between Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde within us. Or if that doesn't work for you, you have a, Michigan, uh, a University of Michigan fan sitting next to an Ohio State fan in your heart. They're cheering at different times. They're jeering at each other. They want the other to fail. And that constant battle is going on in our hearts daily. Constantly. Moment by moment. And so Paul goes on in verse number 19 to say, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's already said those words. He reiterates it to make the point, this is real. This is happening to the Apostle Paul. He's struggling with this. And if a giant like the Apostle Paul is going to struggle with it, how about you and me? How about a hypothetical illustration to make the point? And in no way is this autobiographical of any kind. But imagine you decide that eating healthy is good and right and pleasing to the Lord, and your doctor will love you for it, and so will your spouse. So you decide that tonight after dinner, you're no longer going to eat the two slices of chocolate cake that you normally eat, but tonight you're going to start to eat only one. You with me? We're going to only eat one slice of chocolate cake, not two. Why? Well, because that's the healthy thing to do. That's a healthy choice. We're going to do good. I mean, that's certainly something to rejoice over, so let's try that. So tonight after dinner, you get only one slice of cake, and you eat that slice, and you're happy, and you're like, wow, that's a victory. Praise God. I've succeeded, I've kept this milestone. So later that evening, after the dishes are put away, you decide you want to watch some TV. So you go through the kitchen, on your way to the family room where the TV is, and sitting on that countertop is a piece of chocolate cake, all by itself. It's probably the second slice that you normally eat, but now it's sitting there all by itself, uneaten on the countertop. And you, in a flash, you think, you know, if I cut that into thirds... And just eat one-third of that slice. I'm still better than I used to be, right? I used to eat two slices. Now I'm still less than one and a half. I'd be only at one and a third. I mean, even the angels can rejoice over that. I mean, that's still a victory. And so you, you eat that one-third. And then you, you carefully clean up, and you, you wash the fork, and you put it away. And, and as you're doing that, the phone rings. And, and you answer the phone, and you sit at the countertop, and you take the phone call. And when the phone call is done, you realize there's... Chocolate on your hands. You look down at the plate, and the other third is gone. And there's there's chocolate all over your mouth. Like what happened? Like standing there, confused in the kitchen, wondering what happened, and confused over what's going on. You are convinced that that other slice of cake is saying, "Eat me, eat me." And you realize you're already lost. You're defeated. Your hope to only eat one slice of cake is already out the window. You may as well go all in. And so there it is. You dig in, and there goes the third. You're back to your two slices. That is in no way autobiographical in any way, shape, or form. It's just hypothetical, of course. But as, as humorous as that is, there is nothing funny about that, is it? Because sin is addictive, sin is sneaky. Sin can catch us unawares, and sin can really destroy the good that God wants for us. And while we're talking about chocolate cake, sin, sin can find itself in our lives in so many different ways and shapes and forms. And There's nothing funny when we give in to sin. And there's constant battle between Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that happens for the Apostle Paul For the good that he wants to do, he can't do. But the thing he doesn't want to do is what he ends up doing this battle, this constant battle that's going on in Paul's life, that's going on in my life, that's going on in your life. Where that old nature still comes up and says, Yoohoo, eat me. That's real. And it's painful. And it hurts. Because every time we fall and we fail, we have guilt and we have shame. And we wonder, Lord, I've blown it again. I've said it again. I've done it again. I've seen it again. Why is it that I can't do the good that I want to do? And that battle continues to rage in our hearts. The Apostle Paul then comes to a conclusion at the end of verse number 25. Where he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's Paul's conclusion. His conclusion is there are two natures in, inside of me. One that God has given me, a new nature. A new nature that has power to say no to sin and, and yes to righteousness. But right next to that nature is my old nature. While it has no power, it's still a force to be reckoned with. It still has a voice to call us, to tempt us, to call us back to doing the things we don't want to do. There are two natures inside of us. And so where does that leave the Apostle Paul and where does that leave you? gusted with ourselves, doesn't it? Lord, I want to do good, but I end up not doing it. Why is that? But thank God Paul is not done because in verse number 24, he cries out. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, Paul is calling out for rescue. Paul is crying out for help. You see, in his own ability, he cannot do it. And so he cries out in anguish of his soul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You and I may be crying that. You and I may be doing that. Maybe today you decided you'd wake up early to pray, but you decided, you know, it's a cold morning. It's so much better under the covers. Or perhaps at the beginning of this year, you decided you would read the Bible through this year for the first time. And it's October and you're still in the book of Leviticus. I don't know why God put Leviticus in the Bible. It's usually to trip me up right there. It's where I come to a stop. Amen. <laughs> it's true. Or, I want to join a life group, Lord, but isn't it funny how everything good that ever happens during the week happens the night of life group? Isn't that true? It is for us. Like, everything good happens the night life group happens. Why is, why is that? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? all doesn't leave us hanging verse number 25 the beginning part says thanks be to god through our lord jesus christ the answer is jesus how many of you are so thankful for jesus praise the lord that the answer isn't a system or a philosophy or a political party, the answer is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? That it's Jesus who went to the cross. It's Jesus who paid the penalty. It's Jesus who hung on the cross. It's Jesus who died the death we should have died. It's Jesus who went to the cross to die for our sins, who paid the penalty, set us free. He's the answer. And for those of us who live in Jesus, we have that new identity. We have his presence living in us. Then why is it that we make all these mistakes? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from all of this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christians, we live between two endpoints. We live between the already and the not yet. Already we have given our life to Jesus Christ. Praise God. Already, we have a new identity in Christ. Already, He has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. Already, we are positionally made right with God. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God. And the process of sanctification is happening in our lives. That's already happening. The penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. But not yet has that been officially consummated. Not yet. Has the presence of sin been removed? Not yet has Jesus come to take us to be with Him. Because when He does come to take us with Him, sin will be completely erased. We will no longer live in sin. We will no longer have any distractions. We will get to worship God in full freedom with no hindrance, with no sin, with no uh, obstacles in any way, shape, or form. How many of you are ready for that day? Amen. Some of you are not. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm so ready. We live in between these endpoints. And so we struggle. We fight. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are at war with each other as we live between the already and the not yet. And so what Paul is saying to us is, Jesus Christ is the answer. The answer is not in you and me. The answer is not a set of do's, this and do that or try harder or do better. The answer is fall deeper into him fall deeper into him. For those of us who know Christ for a long time, who have matured in our faith, who have grown in our walk with God, we know that the more of God's glory and light that shines in us, the deeper and darker our sins look, don't they? The more spiritual we are, the worse we feel. And that is true. By the way, that also means that if we are not bothered by our sin. If you're here today and you're not bothered by your sin, we need to reassess whether or not we have a new person living within us. You see, the sin in our life should bother us. It should irritate us. It should cause us to cry out like the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? That should be the cry of every Christian who has a new person in them. Because sin should irritate us. But if it doesn't, Maybe you need to take stock of your life. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, I am so thankful for each and every one of you. We need to rejoice in the fact that the penalty of sin has been paid, the power of sin has been broken, that we have a new identity in Christ, that the Spirit of God comes to live within us, and that as we give ourselves over to Him, as we continue to surrender daily to Him, as we continue to pray, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done, we get to take of his grace. We get to take of his power. We get to take of his strength to help us live each and every day in the light of the power of God that helps us live in victory. That doesn't mean that we don't fail. But when we do fail, as we sang, we have a good, good father, don't we? A father who doesn't stand there with his arms closed and says, I told you not to do that. Or I told you so. No, no. He stands with his arms open wide. And he welcomes you home. He he wants to wrap his arms around you and say, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. I forgive you. You can never exhaust the grace of God. You can never overspend His forgiveness. It's vast as the ocean. His forgiveness and His love for you. Perhaps today you need to repent once again. Repent of the you have committed. Repent of the things that you have done. And come back to the good, good Father that loves you and gave Himself for you. But perhaps you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. Perhaps today for the first time in your heart, you have felt the conviction of sin. Praise God for that. Because that means God is working in your heart to draw you to himself. If you're feeling convicted of your sin for the first time, don't leave here without coming to grips with what God is doing in your heart. What God is doing in your heart is he's drawing you to himself. He wants to show you the ugliness of the sin in your heart and to show you that that ugliness sent Jesus to a cross to pay a penalty you could never pay so that through his death, through his sacrifice, you and I might have a relationship with God that we don't deserve. Friends, if that is you, don't leave here today without coming to know Jesus Christ by faith. All it takes is to say, Lord, I am sorry for the things I've done. I'm sorry for doing this in my own strength. And I accept your free salvation on my behalf. I accept you as Lord of my life. The moment you do that, the Bible says you will be saved. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org/connect to introduce yourself to us today.